hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with and Oh, we're recording. Hello and welcome. I'm Leah Silverman. I'm Tom Blakely. And we have a very special guest for you today. His name is Nat Carney, one of the first people I knew for my 1L section just a mere two and a half years ago. Nat, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a 3L. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in Section 3 with Leah, who was one of the first people I met in law school. Um, I'm originally from Boston and grew up in Newton, uh, Massachusetts. I understand uh, Tom is also from Newton. So I'm... That's correct. Yeah, also from Newton, also from Section 3. I'm currently in Section 3, clearly the best section. I think we can all attest to that. Uh, yes, I am also originally from Newton, grew up uh, in the Nonantum part of Newton. And just before we came on, we were sharing some of our, our, our lingo, our slang, as it were, calling each other mushes. Uh, as I, uh, I went to high school, BC High, went to college in, uh, at Bentley and Waltham, and I came back to Newton to go to uh, BC Lawrence and I'm in Newton Center so I'm gonna get like the full uh the, the full the full tour of the city so I'm sure Nat, Nat and I uh can, can can definitely trade a lot of stories yeah but it's it's clearly the clearly the place to be wouldn't want to be anywhere else I gotta agree with that uh I did not grow up in Nonantum but I went to Newton North with all the uh folks from the lake I, I actually grew up in Newton Center right uh, up the street from Provisor's Deli mm. which unfortunately is no longer there and worked at Rosenfeld's Bagels in high school center there you go. Yeah, now Newton North over Newton South any day of the week. You, you gotta, you gotta, gotta be all about the Tigers there. Yeah. Um, so uh, after high school in Newton, I moved to New Orleans where I went to college at Tulane University. I was very lucky uh, to get in because it was shortly after Hurricane Katrina. You might not know it by my appearance, but I, I'm substantially older than some of my fellow Section Three classmates. You don't look a day over 23. Yeah, they probably still cod you at restaurants, don't they? Oh, my God. This is being recorded, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, sure is. This is great. Thank you. And, uh, uh, yep, so I went to college uh, at, in New Orleans and stayed in New Orleans for five years and change after college. Uh, during that time in college, I was lucky enough to intern for the public defenders down there. And I kind of knew I wanted to do something in the criminal justice system because I just thought it was so interesting and there were so many flaws and just the unfairness of it really spoke to my personality. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I like being unfair, but fighting unfairness. And uh, yeah, so I kind of got the bug and then stayed after law school to become a criminal defense investigator. And when you came to law school, what was your favorite part? about the experience? Certainly getting to know you uh, and the other Section 3 classmates, but what I was really blown away by was the quality of the professors. Uh, our classes are you know, 80 people roughly per section or 60 to 80, depending on the class. But uh, a lot of the professors I really felt took it and you know, invest, invested in their students and in their education, made themselves available and certainly we have a range of interests and they really encouraged 
uh, me to pursue those interests. Certainly the clinical experiences at BC have been all I hoped for coming to law school. That's what really attracted me to Boston College was its commitment to public service and the clinical programs that would expose students before they're barred to what it, it's kind of like to be a practicing attorney in some ways. Uh, thankfully, it allows dumb people like me to make a ton of mistakes without doing too much damage and learn from those mistakes. So I did the Innocence Clinic uh, during 2L and that was an incredible experience for me um, personally, because you, know, you get to interact with clients, you get to investigate cases, you get to work on motions and drafting um, and your filings have consequences. Uh, hopefully good ones. And, you know, there are several cases that were in litigation while I was in the clinic. And even if it wasn't my case, you know, when it was a hearing or something like that coming up, it's kind of all hands on deck. So sometimes you'd be writing a memorandum about whether joint venture theory is viable or, or uh, what the standard is for ineffective assistance of counsel. And these were areas that I kind of had some exposure to before law school, but it really doesn't compare to when you're actually writing and doing the research, how much time it takes to think through these issues and, and really discuss the strategic aspects of bringing certain claims forward or making certain arguments versus not. And uh, that experience has been extremely rewarding for me. Additionally, I've been able to meet people in the law school who are fellow travelers or otherwise wouldn't meet or wouldn't get to know. Um, and so I've formed really close friendships with some of those people and I'm really grateful to that. And I've continued doing clinics uh, even during COVID's you know, Zoom School of Law. Uh, and that has been really rewarding too, which I really am grateful for. I was just gonna just add on to that. It was interesting, you know, sort of hearing about, you know, that and kind of thinking that for myself, like the only like law school that I know, like in one L has been remote has been Zoom and just kind of hearing about you know, a lot of the, 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 the praise you've kind of given the school, like, I think even though the fact that I don't spend a whole lot of time there just because of, you know, the way the world is right now, like I kind of feel the same things, which I think, you know, we're not being paid to say any of this, of course, like, I feel like that's kind of a testament to how true, you know, what you've said is like, even though, you know, as like a community, as, as a school, things are a lot different, you know, for me and kind of the present way that things are than you know, they were for, I guess, for, you know, either of you guys uh, before COVID. I mean, it, it's certainly true. It's definitely a very, you know, great place to be a part of just in terms of like resources and, you know, connections and those things. Like I, I definitely feel it. You know, I don't think I'd want to be in any other school. So I've certainly enjoyed it, enjoyed it myself and can attest to all that. It's a great place. And Nat, don't you have an interesting story? Did your dad went to BC Law, right? He did. Yeah. He had Professor Bob Bloom. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in Professor Bloom's first class teaching, uh, which was over 40 years ago. And Professor Bloom was my 1L Civ Pro teacher. Um, and I, he kind of put it together when there was some event where my dad and I were sitting next to each other. It was like an alumni event and he was on campus or something. And Bloom kind of was like, oh, oh, and was pointed between us. And, and then, you know, I spilled the beans. And Nat's dad is also very cool. I met him at uh, Jillian's, which is an arcade downtown, for those of you listening who aren't native to the Boston area. Yeah, he's a good time. He's a riot. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Now, speaking about Boston, I have a game for us to play. So this is a game where I'm going to pit the two of you against each other for some Boston-based trivia. Sounds good. How do we think we'll fare? Who do we think will win? It's a heavyweight fight, right? Now. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, in that, I think, you know, obviously, you know, being much younger than me, I think that, you know, he, he might not pick up on a lot of these questions, but, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I didn't move back to Boston uh, two and a half years ago, so I, I was away for about 10 years. Well, a lot of these are, are more on the historical side, so we'll see. We'll see who does better. Um, the first question is, in what year was Fenway Park opened? And I guess just, like, raise your hand. Yeah, Tom. 1913. Do you want to steal that? That's wrong. I want to say 1906. Tom was closer. It was 1912. Mm, all right. I, I was next... there on opening day. That's how I, that's how I knew it was around then. Yeah, a year or so off. Years were only $6, right, a pint back then. That's it, yeah. Now they're only, what, 50 Yeah, something like that. If we ever get to go to a baseball game again. Um, <laughs> the next question is really close to my heart. It's what was the vocation of famed freedom rider Paul Revere? I played Paul Revere's daughter in a... Um, play in fourth grade. So I do know this. Nat. Uh, he was a smith, I believe, who made fine cookware in sil with silver. Yes, he was a silversmith. That's correct. My one line from that play was, my father's the silversmith. And that was it. So I remember it very well. You haven't um, lost your acting chops at all. Thank you, Nat. You flatter me. If anyone listening needs a pep talk, just email Nat and he'll give it to you. Um, this one I didn't know, so I don't know if you have to be native to the to the area. What act performs on the Esplanade every Fourth of July? The Boston Pops. That is correct. So I think it's one one right now. Okay, what museum was the victim of the biggest art heist? Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Correct. What do we do like if we both knew it? Like, because we can't really buzz in, but like, I mean, everybody knows about the Gardner. I mean, I don't. All right. What I give it a age, age before beauty. All right. Sorry. Well, sorry. That one. Well, Just he raised kidding. his hand first. Um, well, here, Tom, I'll give you a, a point if you can give me how much the paintings were worth in total. Okay. Um, yeah, I got that right off the top of my head. Uh, I would say like nine figures, hundreds of millions of dollars. Can you be more many. specific? Uh, 150. $500 million. Okay, that's a lot more than I thought. Yes. A lot of, a lot of inflation there. Have you, have you both been there a lot of times? Is that like a... Yeah. It's oh, like a museum. Yeah. I went and once. still have... The cutouts, mm -hmm. frames of the stolen artwork on the wall. But mm -hmm. Elizabeth Stewart Gardner is a really interesting character herself. She was a, uh, the widow of a well, very wealthy older man who died while they were married, obviously. 
So she sent this guy, this other guy all over Europe to buy, uh, you know, the finest art, you know, statues, paintings and what have you and put them in her mansion. She was also, before the term was coined, a cougar and was known to date, we'll say, uh, incoming freshmen at Harvard and had a kind of harem of young men. Uh, I don't know if she had a harem. Actually, I shouldn't say she had a harem of young men. She was known to date much younger men. Frequently, uh, they were Harvard uh, undergraduates. You heard it here. She had a harem of men. You can quote Nat Carney in all of your, uh, if anyone's listening, doing a report on this. But that's actually very interesting. You should be doing the trivia. I'm regurgitating what my grandma told me. So that could be way wrong. Uh, but, you know, you never mess with Nana's knowledge. Your grandma was much more educational than mine was. We were not learning learning such things. So it's, it's uh, I'm at a disadvantage on this topic, it seems. Well, we're here to learn uh, and respect our elders. Certainly. Um, okay. We respect How you not. Oh, I was talking about Nat's grandma, but uh, way to disrespect him. <laughs> um, how long is the Freedom Trail? I have no idea. Uh, 10 miles. 10 miles. Jeez, that's like probably like awfully wrong. It's 2.5 miles long. <laughs> All right. Well, I was... It's walkable. Like it's a trail. It ha- I yeah. you can't tell tourists go walk ten miles. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. two and a half though. That's uh, yeah, that's what it is. Okay, the next one. This is another. I think this is a tricky one because it's very specific. The Boston T system, the oldest subway system in America. It's very obvious for anyone who's been on the T. What year was it built? I don't know, but it's got to be in the first decade of the 20th century. It's like, can you repeat, which part? Which part are you asking was built? Can you say that again? Because I know like the different dates. But you know, the, just the the first the first part of the T. Uh, 1920. No. Okay. The correct answer is 1897. Oh boy! Oh man. If anybody's written on the T, uh, you, you could probably see where, where that's coming from. I, I don't disagree with that. It feels like it's 1887. Yeah, they have not updated it since. No, not at all. Um, also, these are from GoCity.com. So if they're wrong, please don't. Uh, I don't want anyone to call me. Okay. Um, any of the listeners? You can email thomas.blakely at <laughs> .edu. There you go. Now I'd toy. like to uh, hear an opinion question. Who do you think is the most famous Boston native? Oh, native or um, someone who you think like embodies the Boston name. So when we say like embodies Boston, do we mean like like what kind of Boston are we talking about? Are we talking about like like uh, educated like JFK type? Or are we talking like Donnie Wahlberg like Boston like that type? Or just in general? It can be up to your interpretation, the question. Okay. If you had to say, if someone said to you, as I am now, who's the most famous person who embodies Boston? Mm. Uh, I well, would answer Nat Carney, winner okay. of Moot Court 2020. 
the last event that I went to on campus. I think that's why campus was shut down. Yes. Wow. That we need to reevaluate. A hundred percent. For Boston College, because this moron did so well in this competition. I was just coasting on Carmela, my partner's coattails. She was fantastic, and I was lucky. Uh, And I hitched my wagon to her before the competition even started. I emailed her and said, I know this is coming up. I would like you to be my partner. And I knew that she would crush it, which she did. So, uh, I mean, Carmela is great, but you do have to give a little credit to yourself. I did watch that panel, and you were phenomenal. Thank you very much. It was an interesting, uh, it was interesting, the whole experience. Uh, to catch Tom up, uh, Dean Rougeau came in in the beginning and was like, hey guys, during this competition, you'll probably get an email about an announcement don't worry about it. Worry about it after. And then during the competition, we get an email. School's going to be closed for the rest of your semester. Jeez. Clean out wow. your lockers and go. That's yeah. That's the kind of announcement you want to see. That's good. So like really, so you're just sitting there and like that's it just came down just like that. That was the end. We're sitting I in a large crowd. Wow. Which is exactly where you'd want to be during that time is sitting in a large crowd. Perfect. <laughs> and then we had finger food afterwards. Beautiful. There you yeah. go. Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of funny, kind of surreal. The because I think right after we finished, Dean Rougeau was like, "Campus is closed." Mm. When did you know this was coming, or like suspected, or? I I had no idea. I don't even remember Dean Rougeau's announcement before the argument. I don't. I don't know that you were in the room yet. Yeah. I think you were. Did you walk into the room? I don't, I don't even remember. I don't. Yeah, it was so, a few minutes before. So I wasn't there. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners might not have been. So like, was it um like did, did you just like was like the next day you just did Zoom class or like were you guys like out of commission? Yeah, for- literally. I think they like stopped class for maybe a week or something. A week, yeah. What okay. to do, and then started doing Zoom. I mean, it was very impressive that they were able to, um, you know, coordinate that on such short notice. Mm-hmm. How were the early Zoom classes? How did it go? Was it like a learning curve to it? Yeah, I would say so. Because I I moved back home. And Mm -hmm. for me, there was a learning curve. I mean, for the professors, some of them um, more than others. But it was, you know, I had to find the right room and everyone using the Wi-Fi. It was, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in a, a practicum class where we have to make like arguments and stuff like that. And certainly over Zoom, it was more difficult than, you know, having it in person. But it wasn't that bad. I mean, uh, yeah. for the podium classes, it felt not too different. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was, it was kind of weird. The whole thing was surreal. And what's funny is we, in the clinic, we do, we investigate our own cases in the innocence clinic a lot of the time. So we had been doing field investigation, you know, interviewing witnesses, collecting records, yada, yada, that whole year. And I remember in January, my partner was joking like, or actually she was serious. I was joking about the COVID crisis. And I I had said, oh, you know, I don't think it's going to be an issue. And, And she had said, no, this one, this is the real one. And I was, you know, kind of making light of it that 
Um, she was being uh, hyperbolic, but she was 100% right. And, uh, <laughs> and we had been investigating maybe the week before over spring break. I can't remember if spring break was before. I think it was. Yeah, it was. We got back that Monday and then school got canceled Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. So it was crazy. I had just I had just been on a plane. I had just been in California and I remember I was wiping down the seats and I was like, should I buy a mask? And everyone's like, oh, Leah, you're so dramatic. And I was like, well, there's, you know, 12 cases in California. And I was like, 12 cases is a lot. I don't want to go to California. Um, But I did and it was lovely. Um, But yeah, we came back and then everyone left again. I was thinking about who embodies Boston. Yes, back to my question. And I think maybe embodies is not the right word, but the person who I think of and who's a hero of mine uh, among many, or there's two of them that come to mind. One is Malcolm X, who spent a lot of time in Roxbury uh, before going on to later fame. But I think his story in Boston and his time talking about it embodies parts of Boston that really aren't always representative of the narrative, the racism he experienced in the North and how that shaped some of his ideas later on in life. And I think that in a sense is an issue that's been coming more and more to the forefront, certainly in the last few years, but has always been present. That Boston has a horrible racist history and that we haven't really addressed it in any meaningful way and that failure is, in a sense, doomed a lot of the efforts to reform access to housing, access to healthcare, access to education, and other inadequacies that plague the city to this day, access to justice, certainly chief among them. And then the other person who embodies Boston to me, or someone that I really highly respected, was Tom Menino, uh, the former mayor uh, before Marty Walsh. Um, Like probably two thirds of Boston residents, I had the pleasure of meeting Mayor Menino during one of his lightning storm handshakes uh, at a homeless spaghetti dinner. It was a fundraiser called a spaghetti dinner for the homeless. And to me, he combined a lot of things about Boston that I really like which is he was certainly for development and changed the city and the skyline in ways we're still experiencing, whether it's the seaport or other kind of visionary ideas, but he was also an extremely neighborhood guy that, you know, he would drive the streets and if he saw a pothole, he would call the Department of Public Works saying this, I just drove by, you know, this Columbus Ave and there's a pothole at, you know, this cross street, get it fixed. And he was at every restaurant opening or big or small. And the other thing, even though he was for development and was kind of a kingmaker in that regard, which pissed off a lot of the well-to-do, one of the ways to get 
entry into City Hall with him was you had to show up for the homeless census, which is conducted, I think, in December and January, where literally people go out uh, in, on a cold winter night and count how many homeless people are in a neighborhood, you know, roughly. And the reason why is it, the city would use that number to inform its budget, how much, you know, how many beds they would need or how many sheets to buy or, you know, what kind of resources this population might need. And if you wanted to get something done, you better be there. And I thought that was a really good message to send about how politics works, which is that you, you know, the rich and powerful should be expected to be there and show up to help our neediest citizens. And he was famously not a good public speaker. You know, his nickname was Mumbles and, you know, did adult education, you know, was not, didn't go to Harvard, wasn't that type, but he was one of the most brilliant and visionary leaders I think the city had and someone who I, I was very much inspired by uh, because of the way he spoke to people, the things he fought for, and he wasn't always right, you know, I mean, certainly in his battles with some, several of the unions were, got ugly, um, I think when Chick-fil-A tried to move to Boston, he denied them a permit, which uh, the reason he did it was because they wouldn't support uh, LGBTQ uh, rights, you know, uh, which is important. It sends a message that this is a tolerant city. He wouldn't march in probably the biggest parade in Boston, the St. Patrick's Parade, because they also wouldn't allow LGBTQ people to march in their parade. And he said, if they can't do it, I'm not going to do it. In fact, that fight is still going on where the out veterans group is, you know, trying to get a seat at the table. Um, and so I was really impressed with him. And in many ways, I think he embodies some of the best parts of Boston. I just want to respond uh, to, to both of the points. One uh, on Mayor Menino or Mumbles Menino, as he was affectionately uh, nicknamed. Uh, as well as, you know, what Nat had said earlier about, you know, sort of the, the history in Boston or the status quo. Uh, I think that I can certainly attest to pretty much almost everything that you said. Uh, I think that Menino, and he was somebody who, you know, he um, passed away probably about eight years ago now. Um, and, you know, Marty Walsh kind of came into power. Now Marty Walsh is, seems almost on his way out the door. Um, and, and I think that's really a great choice because I think Menino in so many ways uh, embodied a lot of different parts of Boston, you know, certainly like the political you know, institutional, uh, you know, part of not only Boston, but Massachusetts, you know, really in his own way. I mean, like you said, you know, this was not uh, the smartest guy that went to the greatest schools. He was just, he was just Boston, you know, in every sense of the word. Uh, I mean, the, the Menino himself, I think, was an institution in so many ways. And I think that, you know, what, what really made the guy so great is, you know, whether it's real estate, whether it's development, whether it's unions, whether it's, uh, you know, homelessness, whether it's, you know, I mean, I think the example of the pothole is, is really strong. I mean, obviously Boston, uh, I don't think we have many potholes. Like that's not a knock out here on Boston very frequently, but I mean, of course, you know, I, I, I kid, but I mean, he was salt of the earth. He was somebody that, you know, I, I think in so many different ways, you know, just was uh, Boston, you know, and, and I think that's really a tremendous example. And I also think that, uh, you know, in your earlier point there about, I mean, not specifically, you know, Malcolm X, but just Boston's, uh, you know, history, uh, you know, with racism, I think something that I've found, um, you know, kind of growing up here and going to school here uh, all the way through and kind of getting to know a lot of different people now being in, you know, BC law and, you know, potentially, you know, having a 
future somewhere, you know, uh, in, in, in the city. Um, I think that's something that's really, really strong uh, force that's strong and not in a good way in Boston. I think a lot of people are going to test this is just the power of the status quo. I think Boston has, I mean, every city's got problems, but Boston has, you know, a deep and ugly history with racism uh, with, you know, the Catholic church, there's a whole lot of things there. Um, and I feel like one of the things that's unfortunate with Boston is it's a very closed off, uh, you know, sort of insulated, uh, you know, sort of under the table, you know, just the, the culture that exists is one that I think restrains change and restrains progress in so many ways. And I think it's unfortunate because it's just so, I think, you know, deep seated, like the culture that we have, um, you know, and the issues that we face. I mean, I, we're, we're still working on these things, you know, decades later. And, you know, I, I think things are changing. I think things are getting better, uh, you know, as I think the, the world and our country becomes more enlightened. But I think Boston, you know, for, for everything we do right, we, we do have, you know, a long way to go. And I think that, you know, the, the most important thing is, you know, having, you know, leaders who are, who are educated, but at the same time, I think can really relate to both sides of this, whether you're people who are, you know, sort of salt of the earth, like Menino, or you're, you know, the, the more educated type, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're gay or you're straight, whether, you know, no matter where it is that you come from, I think it's really important to be able to understand not only the history and to be able to learn from it, but at the same time, you know, understand, you know, who we are, because I think Boston, like a lot of cities, um, we're very unique, you know, I think kind of understanding how things work, uh, and they don't always work well, um, is very important. I think Menino was somebody who really did, you know, understand that. I think it's important to have, you know, leaders, whether they come from BC law or Suffolk law or any law school or don't even go to law school at all to be able to understand these things and really understand the city and its people and its history, which isn't always a pleasant thing to discuss is extremely important. I think you raised a lot of uh, really great points. And I, I know we had fun at the beginning, but this got quite, quite serious and quite profound. Um, and I uh, enjoyed, uh, enjoyed it very much. Well, definitely not the answer I expected I was expecting Ben Affleck you know yeah, yeah exactly um Mark Mr. Walter. Duncan from Dunkin Donuts from Cambridge uh, okay I don't know these things um that's why I have you to educate me and um might not have been the answer I expected but it was the answer I deserved a well thought out beautiful answer just like yourself Nat thank you so much for coming on our show we really appreciate it I know Tom has to get to his interview in a few minutes, mm -hmm. but is there anything else you want to tell the people, Matt? No, Tom, good luck in your interview. I wish you the best. And Leah, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me on and congratulations on all your success with the podcast. It seems to be Thank going you. Well. Thank you. Thank you. So nice to see you. Congratulations to your face. whole team and your cat, which I can see on Zoom. Thank you. I have to say, of all the Zoom cats that I see, Aaliyah's is probably got the best cat. That's a very, very nice cat. Very camera-friendly cat. You'll She's love to very see it. Cute.